Blog Talk Radio. oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership and this is your host Brian Perkins. Happy to be here today broadcasting live again from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hot, hot, hot is the temperature. (laughs) So I uh, want to uh, welcome you all um, to our uh, new listeners, um, welcome um, to our uh, family that has returned week after week. Welcome back. Uh, today we have uh, an award-winning professor uh, with us from the University of Michigan. Uh, University of Michigan has a top-ranked psychology department and a business school, and uh, we have the director of the Motion and Self-Control Laboratory, which is with us today, uh, Dr. Ethan Cross. Welcome, Ethan. Thanks for having me. I'm calling from Ann Arbor, where it is equally hot, hot, hot. <laughs> well, uh, let me tell you, it's it's uh, it's usually um, hotter, but it's uh, it's it's uh, quite humid um, as usual. But uh, we're, we're going to make it through anyway. Um, I. Uh, I'm so uh, excited to have you on, Ethan, because I've heard a lot of the work um, that you've done. I've I've, uh, read and going to talk a little bit about your book that you have called Chatter uh, in just a moment. And I'm fascinated to to hear more. You talk a lot about in your work about voices in our head. But if you don't mind, before we get into that, Tell us a little bit about this emotion and self-control laboratory. I know you say that the laboratory's mission is to improve um, the understanding of how people can control their impulses. Tell us a little bit about your research and how you do that exactly. Yeah, happy to. Um, so first of all, thanks for thanks for having me on the show. I love love what you're doing with this um, with this production. So what we do in the lab is essentially there are two big picture goals that motivate the the work that my my students and I and my collaborators do. The first is we like to think about ourselves as as kind of like mind mechanics, and we are captivated by the concept of of self control, uh, which I it, I use that term to capture a broad array of phenomena. I use that term to, to refer to a person's ability to, to align their thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with their goals. So essentially, you know, how do you want to think? How do you want to feel? That's all about self-control. And as you know, um, lots of people in this world struggle with it. Lots of students struggle with it. Lots of teachers struggle with it. Lots of principals and superintendents, we all struggle with it. I think this is one of the big problems we face as a species. And so what we do in the lab is we try to understand the nuts and bolts that explain how self-control works. And sometimes that leads us to study the brain. Other times we're doing studies with kids in school. 
and other studies where, you know, other towns are doing experiments in our laboratory um, at Michigan. So that's one of our goals. The second goal is, is really it's, it's a goal to have impact, which is we do science and we try to discover we try to discover things about how people work, so to speak, when it comes to this topic of self-control. And then the question is, how can we use that information to to move the needle when it comes to people exercising self-control in their daily lives? And so we do a lot of intervention studies where we try to see how the how the findings that we observe under carefully controlled conditions in the lab, how do those findings play out in daily life? Mm-hmm. And we also do a lot of... Um, of translational work and and, uh, communication where we try to uh, educate people about what we're learning and what our colleagues are learning. So that's what we do in the lab. It's it's a lot of fun. It keeps us busy. And um, uh, it's, 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 it's certainly a passion. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I I saw you give a talk about um, some of the experiments that you've done, um, and I found that to be really interesting. Um, one um, one study that you've done, I'm sure you, you know, these are uh, experimental uh, design where you have kind of I guess cases and control groups, but um, but that this particular one. Um, you were looking into um, what makes uh, people um, speak uh, differently about mm-hmm. themselves under stressful situations. Um, and I was just wondering what, like, so what did you learn about um, uh, about that work? So, um, so this was a this was a fun and and really informative study to do, and so I'll, I'll give you a, a quick rundown of of what mm-hmm. we did. Uh, essentially, what we were interested in looking at in this study is how does the language, how do the words people use to refer to themselves when they're thinking about their lives, how do the words that we use to refer to ourselves influence our ability to perform well under stress? Um, and in particular, we were interested in this phenomenon where you often see anecdotes in which people, you hear of anecdotes in which people, when they're under stress, they do this seemingly odd thing. They refer to themselves using their own name. So um, uh, one famous example, this was LeBron James when he was trying to figure out where the, the basketball player LeBron James, most most listeners probably know that, but, but just in case, um, <laughs> So uh, when he was really stressed out about trying to decide what team to play for when he was a free agent, he said when he's being interviewed, LeBron James got to do the best thing for LeBron James. And lots of people do this thing under stress. And so we wanted to understand, does shifting from using the first person pronoun I, how am I feeling what I should do to using your name? How is Ethan feeling? What should Ethan do? Does that make a difference? And, and going into the study, we thought it would because one of the things we've learned over the years is that it is much, much easier to give other people advice than it is mm. for us to take, mm. our, take our own advice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even a name for this phenomenon. It's called Solomon's Paradox. It's named after the Bible's King Solomon, who was world-renowned for being a sage advisor but if you look mm-hmm. carefully at his own life, he made a, a slew of awful decisions um, mm-hmm. that ultimately sunk his sunk his kingdom. So, mm-hmm. so what we wanted to see is the, the idea was when you use your name, it's getting you to think about yourself like you're another person. 
right? When do we use names? Usually when we think about sure. word other people. So we thought it would be a linguistic tool for shifting our perspective really easily and that people might remain calm as a result. And so the way we tested that idea, we brought people into the lab, and when they got to the lab, we told them that um, that they'd be asked, you know, the study they were about to participate in was about how to, you know, how to uh, give public speeches. And we then did something that was kind of mean, but I, I prefaced that by saying that we were a little mean in the service of learning something to help people um, mm -hmm. regulate mm -hmm. themselves in their lives. We basically, mm -hmm. we, we told them that their job today was to give a speech on why they were ideally qualified to land their dream job. We told them, we want you to talk about your strengths and weaknesses, but and importantly, provide us with real-world examples that illustrate how you've overcome your weaknesses and ways to perfectly position you for this opportunity. And um, we gave people three or four minutes to do this. It, they were in, a, in this, like, very small, claustrophobic room. They didn't have a paper or a pen, you know, no, no writing instruments, no computer. So it was a really challenging task, one that was designed to get their stress levels up. And so we get everyone's stress levels up, and then by the flip of a coin, we have participants in one condition. We tell them, you know, one of the things we're interested in this study is how people report preparing themselves psychologically right before showtime, right, right mm -hmm. before they have to give a speech. Some people report trying to work through their feelings in the first person. So that's what we want you to do. Ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? What am I feeling? Participants in the other condition got the exact same instructions with one exception. Rather than telling them to think about their emotions and circumstances in the first person, we asked them to use their name, right? Mm -hmm. So if I was a, a person in the study, I'd be like, why is Ethan feeling this way? And um, so we had them do this for about three minutes, and then we took them down the hall to another room, and they, they go in the room, and there are three Confederates in front of them. These are, these are research assistants who are trained to essentially be the evaluators, and, and we train mm -hmm. these assistants to be, have really nasty body language. They're like, imagine, <laughs> imagine your most hostile audience facial expressions. That's what sure. they um, that's what these Confederates were designed to do. And, mm -hmm. and participants then give their speech. They give their mm -hmm. speeches. And so when the study is done, we, we have people rate participants' performances for how well they did. How, how persuasive were these presentations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that participants who used their name, they actually gave better speeches. They were rated as being more confident, less nervous, and, and more persuasive overall. When they, they were talking about themselves in... When, I'm sorry to interrupt. So when they were talking about themselves yeah, as a sure. person, they were they were more likely to be more confident talking about, in my case, if I talk about Brian, I'm going to be more confident than if I talk about, if I say I. Yeah, with one caveat. So they do that, they think about their life in the first person or in the mm -hmm. third person using their name. That's mm -hmm. the first part. Once they give their speech, the speech is then, they don't carry that through in the, the speech is still in the first person. So it's gotcha. not, okay. they're not okay. continuing to talk about themselves. And that's actually a, an interesting point that I'm glad you brought out because we have people engage in this, this linguistic shift. We call it distanced mm -hmm. self-talk, talking about mm -hmm. just the name. Mm -hmm. They do it privately. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because 
you're obviously violating social norms when you start mm-hmm. talking about yourself in the third person. Third you don't person. want people to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't encourage listeners to go around, you know, talking to others about, you know, oh, Ethan's really stressed right now. You know, very quickly descend into an episode of Seinfeld. Well, um, well, let me let so, me tell you but, this. No, yeah. But let me let me tell you yeah. this. The reason I ask is because I I had a a colleague that I worked with. And in certain situations, he would refer to himself in third person. And, I I mean, I thought it was strange, but, you know, eventually everyone was just used to it. It wasn't that he said it all the time. It's just that it was just enough that I just used to wonder, like, what is that about? Like, what – I always thought, you know, psychologically, this must be whatever the topic is is a topic that he's trying to distance himself from. And so, you know, so he's saying this because he really doesn't want to think of himself in this situation, but it would happen. And I just, I thought it was strange. So that's why I thought, you know, I said, well, let me, is this what you were saying? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, well, let let me, let me just tell you the the end of the result and then I'll come back because it's a great point. I want to, I want to, I want to clarify something. So basically the people who use their name, they perform better. They feel less shame and embarrassed when they're done. And, and they actually ruminate, they perseverate less about how they did after the study is over. Subsequent studies by, by my group and others have taken us further. They've shown that these linguistic shifts could reduce cardiovascular reactivity during stressful circumstances like giving a public speech. So, so you're not showing a, a, a really uh, dysfunctional um, uh, cardiovascular threat response, which is basically your heart starts beating lots of blood, and then your, your veins and arteries constrict with no place for the blood to go. You're, you're functioning mm-hmm. more optimally physically. And perhaps most interesting, when we look at, in some studies, like, so how are these shifts helping people? You know, so we ask people to actually write down what they're thinking about when they're trying to work through their emotions in the first person or using their name. The differences are really quite compelling. So in the first person, people are all in threat mode. They're thinking, oh, I got to give a public speech. I take days to prepare a public speech. I can't do this. This is going to suck. No way. Um, You know, other people, you know, when they talk about what's going through their head, it's like a rapid fire string of emotions. Can't do it oh, my God, this is awful. What am I going to do? Very fragmented thinking. When you look at people who are using their name, they're essentially, it's like they're giving, they're coaching themselves through it like they would someone else. They're becoming their own coach. It's like, Ethan, you've given hundreds of speeches before, and you've never screwed up. Why are you going to screw up now? You're not going to. Go do it. Or, you know, sometimes it's even a firmer voice, like, Ethan, get your act together. Stop dilly-dallying. You're going to nail this, and so forth. So we're really giving people different narratives through these linguistic shifts. So we call this distant self-talk. Uh, I think it's one. It's an example of one tool among many, many tools that can be really useful for helping people manage what I call their chatter, that, that kind of in, in looping negative verbal, verbal stream that I think gets the best of many people at times, that rumination and worry. This is a way of, of getting out of that negative thought loop um, mm-hmm. that, that can be quite helpful. And going back to your colleague's experience, what I find so interesting about this phenomenon, uh, as I was researching it for my book, 
I stumbled across so many examples of people doing this spontaneously. Ah. People, everyone from, from, from Julius Caesar to Nobel Prize winning peace activist Malala Yousafzai to Hollywood actress Jennifer Lawrence to most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, the, the U.S. silver medalist shot putter, um, I, forget, I forget her name, um, under conditions of stress, Many people reflexively default to using their name to work through troubling experiences or Mm -hmm. difficult experiences. Mm -hmm. And and it's odd. And I think this is the value of doing science on this because what we've learned is there's there's a rationale for why people do this. It is functional. It's useful. And the hope is that by sharing this science about what this does for us, how it can help, that gives people the opportunity to be more deliberate about incorporating this tool into their lives. So to make that really concrete, I can tell you that when I, when I start getting a little bit of chatter, I, when I smell the, the rumination and worry starting to perk up, and you know I study this stuff, but I can experience it myself at times too, I instantly default to silently trying to work through that experience using my name. All right, Ethan. How are you going to manage a situation? Mm. So I don't wait to stumble on something that helps me. I'm very proactive. And uh, I think that helps me and and lots of others uh, regulate ourselves much more effectively in daily life. So that's an example of just one kind of study we've done in the lab. Um, And it's an example of what one, just one of, you know, 26 or so different kinds of tools that uh, are empirically supported for helping people manage um, manage your emotional lives that I talk about. Sure. Sure. And, and so you, you talk about the voice in our head um, and, and so this voice, what you're suggesting is there's a way we can manage this voice. And is that, are you saying that for the purpose of using it for motivation or using it to help us, um, work through difficult situations. Is, uh, so, what? what how exactly? Because yeah. when you say harness it, uh, that to me uh, reads control it. Um, and, yes. and so, I, I guess I'd love to hear more about what, like, how do you actually condition that voice? Well, so I think the first thing to keep in mind, and uh, you know, one 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 question I get a lot is. Hey, you know, Dr. Cross, Ethan, Professor Cross, E, people call me all sorts of things. You know, whatever the <laughs> reference is, mm-hmm. how can I silence my inner voice? Mm-hmm. And the first thing I say is you actually, you know, silencing your inner voice um, is potentially problematic. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is the, the voice inside our head, this is a, a remarkable tool. I like to think of it as a, a kind of Swiss army knife of the human mind. What I'm talking about when I'm referring to this voice in our head, our inner voice, I'm talking about our ability to silently use language to reflect on our our experiences. That capacity is a uniquely human one, and and it serves a variety of functions. And just to give you a few examples, the voice in your head, that's part of what we call our working memory system. It's a basic system of the mind that helps helps keep information active. So you go to the grocery store, you want to remind yourself, hey, what do I have to, what do I have to buy? Scallions, yogurt, cheese. I'm projecting here, my, my own. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What allows you to do that? It's your voice. It's the voice in your head. When you repeat a phone number, if I say repeat right now, 209-0501, repeat it in your head silently. You just use the voice in your head. So our voice uh-huh. in your head helps us keep information in mind. It's a, that, that ability is essential to navigating the world. But it also helps us do lots of other things like plan for the future, to simulate things. Like before I give a presentation, I often go over the talking points silently in my head. Mm-hmm. When I'm trying to regulate myself, you know, when I go downstairs to the refrigerator at 10.30 at night or more often the freezer and I look at the ice cream and when I say that, don't do anything, you'll regret it in the morning. That's the voice in my head. Right. And we also use this voice in our head to to do something that I think is truly magical. And I mean that not in a um, hard-to-believe way, but in, a, in an awe-inspiring way. We use the voice in our head to make stories that explain how we live our lives, that stories that give shape to our understanding of who we are, stories that shape mm-hmm. our identity. Right? Bad things happen. How do you make sense of the fact that you were rejected or insulted or whatever? We use language to weave those stories together. That's all the voice in your head, okay? Sure. Um, in Chatter, I tell the story of a, of a woman who had a stroke and lost her ability to temporarily to use language. And not just to talk to others, but to talk to herself. Initially, she described this experience as as euphoric, because at when her language left her, so did all her worries and ruminations. Mm. But what she soon discovered was, without language, she couldn't make sense of her experiences. She couldn't do basic things like keep information active in her head, like plan for the future. So the challenge is not to silence that voice. You want to free it up for all the really great things that it, it can do. The trick is sometimes, as most listeners will know, that voice in our head can get the best of us. Right. We go right. inside, we try to find an answer to our problems, we start worrying, we're ruminating. To use a technical term, we start making ourselves crazy, we make other people crazy, we keep ourselves up at night. Pervasive problem. And and that's really where the challenge of identifying science-based tools to harness that voice really mm-hmm. come into play. So what does science tell us about this situation? How can you really fine-tune the way this voice operates in your life? And the good news is that Science has a great deal to say uh, about this about this question, and um, and that's what I, I tried to get into in my book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, much of what you just said really is interesting to me because it it made me think about um, those those voices um, that are are not well informed, um, and so those. So I guess my question is. Are there some inner voices that are underdeveloped, like in some people, where the voice is it a is it a reflection on on the individual? What voice is available? Because you know, I, I, as I was listening, you gave some really positive examples of voices being helpful, and at times, if you overthink, they are unhelpful. But what about voices that are not necessarily developed well enough or that don't have the right um, guidance or did, were not developed well? Um, is, that, is that possible? Uh, it is possible. So, 
you know, a, a couple of things I would say quickly to that question is, you know, the first point is, uh, you know, a lot of people think that voice, having a voice in your head is a province of mental illness. And, mm. and I try to address this issue head on in the book to say that's not true. Uh, we all have this ability to hear voices or, you know, to silently use language in a certain sense to reflect on our mm-hmm. lives. Now, mm-hmm. Sometimes the things we tell, the stories we create and the conversations we have with ourselves can be very dysfunctional. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the narratives that we create to uh, make sense of our experiences can lead us astray. This is, in fact, what we see happen in many cases in people who are suffering. Not necessarily mm-hmm. people who are suffering. Uh, certainly it is the case that this is true of you know, many clinical populations, people are clinically depressed and anxious, but it's also the case of just, you know, every day, everyone else in the world, you know, sometimes a kid will tell, will have a narrative, a failure narrative. That's not helpful for helping them manage school and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. A teacher, a principal, you're on, you know, like the audience that you, that you interact with. um, I think this is true for many of us. And what we've discovered over the years is that, you can change these narratives. Um, oftentimes, the way you change these narratives does not have to be heavy-handed. Sometimes it can be, and there's a need for that. But, but there are also subtle ways to change these narratives that, that can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that really is the province of, of what I talk about in the book, which is, you know, what are the dysfunctional conversations that we're having with ourselves, the unproductive ones? We spend, mm-hmm. unfortunately, a lot of time having those kinds of conversations. And, and um, I think the more we can do to improve those conversations, the better off we'll all be in terms of our health, our relationships, and our well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. For those of you who may have, been, have joined us a little late, um, we have Dr. Ethan Cross, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, um, in the psychology department and the school of business. And we're talking a little bit about um, his national bestseller, Chatter, uh, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. Um, and I, we're coming close to wrapping up this conversation. I, I told you, Ethan, that this would go really fast. There's so much that I think is out there and even more. I want to encourage people listening in. There's a wealth of information about Ethan's work available on the internet. I also want to encourage you um, to pick up this, um, this book, um, Chatter. It has received uh, accolades from all over uh, some of the, the uh, nation's best thinkers uh, on this and other topics. So I think it's very much worthwhile uh, for those of you who are in leadership uh, thinking about being in leadership to understand uh, the harnessing of this uh, this this voice in your head. Um, I, I I think you know I was I in the first part I I was um, struck by the fact that you've done a lot of work on this about uh, kind of the relationship between um, your your perceived as I understand it your kind of your perceived health or pain and actual health and pain as well. And I was surprised um, in your book that you, you described very early on about uh, people being very angry in some ways about some of the work. And I was just like, what, why would anyone be 
uh, upset by uh, the work that you've done with this, and why would it be seen as controversial? Um, any any insight on what you've learned, um, particularly since you wrote the book, but as to why some people are upset about it? Well, you know, I I, I opened the book with a story that what a personal story about an experience in which I had chatter, and um, the story was. Um, Basically, the story dealt with an article that we published that got a, a lot of media attention, and then I got a, a threatening letter in the mail, which was quite disturbing and, and upsetting. I don't. That's the only. Uh, that's the only um, negative, thankfully, that I heard about that work. So, um, you know, it was a very poignant experience that obviously affected me deeply as I talk about it in the book because it was quite, quite um, disconcerting. But uh, more generally, there's the response to that work and the book um, has, has been really um, uh, ref- refreshingly positive, oh, I can absolutely. say, as a first-time first author. Uh, you know, when you put yourself out there with a book, it can be uh, quite a, a vulnerable experience, mm-hmm. an experience that certainly requires a person who studies emotion regulation to use sure. the tools that, that he understands. So, um, so it was really just that one, one, experience, okay. one letter that was, yes, it was not, not more general than that. Not thank, more general, thank sure. Yes, good, good, thank you. Um, I know we're running out of time, but I have a couple of people I want to um, tap in here that have called in, have been waiting a very long time. Um, so I'm going to take a couple of callers. Um, we have a caller from 713 Area Code. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, my question for Dr. Cross is, is there any data around the percentage of time that we are making decisions based on our inner voice versus decisions that we are sort of verbalizing? Um, you mean verbalizing out loud versus internally? Yeah, I'm coming from a space of, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy where people have probably been oppressed or they're just they have all these inner thoughts of second-guessing themselves and doubting themselves sort of like what you alluded to but is there any data around those persons making decisions based solely on those inner thoughts or that inner voice ah I see um well, the closest you can get um, to to that kind of data would be studies which look at the the cognitive processes, so the, the the thought processes, which are often verbal when it comes to those kinds of um, problems that people are thinking about. So there have been studies that look at you know so what essentially what what thoughts are streaming through your head that are leading you to think, feel, and behave in the way that you are, self-doubt and, and really inner critique. So there are studies there. Uh, but it is also important to, you know, one just clarifying comment is we think both in terms of uh, words. We spend a lot of time words in our head. But we also can think of, think in terms of images. Um, and, and those aren't always perfectly separable experiences. Sometimes it's both. So inner doubt, you know, if I'm thinking that, oh, my God, am I going to be able to to talk with this illustrious, esteemed interviewer that I'm speaking with right now, there might be words of doubt streaming through my head, but also some images of me floundering. Um, so the two go hand in hand. 
Um, really uh, appreciate you um, uh, coming on, and we, you know, this has been really a good uh, uh, talk about uh, the inner voice. Uh, we have a lot of um, uh, leaders that I'm sure have benefited from uh, what you've uh, shared, and and just want to thank you uh, and encourage you to keep doing the work that you're doing. Um, and um, we look forward to um, to hearing more from what's coming out of your lab. And uh, I just want to also remind you, uh, people who are, um, are are listening in, that uh, the title of the book is Chatter, and um, it is available on Amazon. And just want to encourage you, uh, especially those of you who are aspiring leaders, to to get a sense of, uh, of that inner voice. And so um, we have, uh, if you're interested, next week, uh, we have a great show lined up for you. Uh, we have uh, a, a gentleman joining us to talk about uh, the uh, perceptions that are held and how they impact uh, children's performance. Uh, so thank you for listening in. And uh, thank you again, Ethan. Uh, go well. Stay well. Thanks for having me.